Today's reading is Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Senian, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nation, the son of Amenadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. I was going to ask y'all to clap for Kara, but you already did. Good morning, family of God. I don't think this mic is up enough. Guys, can you? Oh, there it is. Okay. Good morning, family of God. But seriously, she just pronounced Melchi correctly, not once, but twice. Verse 24 and verse 28. Hey, would you bow your heads with me? I want to pray and ask God's blessing on this time. One more time. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We praise you because you are a God who speaks. And we ask you that this morning we would be a people who hear. I pray that we'd be a people who hear not only with our ears, but with hearts of faith. I ask for myself, for the help of your Holy Spirit right now, to say everything that you want me to say and to say it clearly. And I ask for all of us as a people, just grace, Lord, that we'd be transformed by the renewal of our mind as we think of Jesus as the culmination and the center of human history. Pray it all in his name. Amen. So Luke's gospel has finally reached the point at which Jesus is an adult. He's about 30 years old and he's beginning his public ministry. And from this point on, 
Jesus is going to do a lot of exciting stuff. He's going to open the eyes of the blind. He's going to heal sick people and raise the dead. He's going to cast out demons. He's going to proclaim the arrival of the kingdom of God. And he's going to teach with a combination of wisdom, compassion, and authority that the world has never known before or since. And ultimately, he's going to die on the cross for our sins and rise again. But now, before Luke launches into all of that, he pauses to give us this genealogy. Now, I think we can have a moment of honesty, church family. Even among the Jesus-loving, committed disciples who love to read their Bible, some of us skim when we get to these genealogies, don't we? Anybody want to confess? If you've skimmed a genealogy, say amen. Okay. And we especially uh, struggle if we're asked to read it out loud to the community, which is why we clapped for Kara a second ago. So sometimes we feel a little bit alienated from these genealogies, particularly as modern Western American readers, and we're wondering what's going on here. And I want to begin today just by giving you three simple but profound spiritual lessons we can learn from this genealogy. Actually, the first two apply to any but biblical genealogy. And the third one is especially for this one. The Bible's genealogies help us to think in terms of generations. That's one of our key words today. Everybody say generations. And more specifically, they're teaching us to put ourselves in this story and to understand the meaning of our own lives in a way that is enriched by the story of those who have gone before us, as well as those who will come after us. My life and your life and every human life is a product of generations that have gone before us and of those who have come after us. And in our culture, we don't necessarily think that way. Now, we've got a multi-ethnic church with people from seven or eight different ethnicities today. And so for some of you, you have a culture that does tend to honor ancestors and to think about genealogy. But the dominant American culture isn't that way. As a matter of fact, all of us in this room, biologically, whether we ever met them or not, we had two parents and four grandparents and eight grandparents and 16 great-great-grandparents and so on. But if I was going to ask you how many of your 16 great-great-grandparents you know, how many could you list? Probably most of us would give an answer between zero and one or two. We, we just don't tend to know our story. We, we live in a culture that is very oriented towards the present. We don't necessarily think much about those who have gone before us. And we don't tend to actually think very much about what's the legacy we're going to leave for people ten generations from us. We tend to focus on the present. We, we live in a culture that tends to be very hyper-individualistic. And there's some good things about the American emphasis on the dignity of the individual. That's important. But these genealogies here are reminding us and awakening us to the fact that the meaning of your individual life and the dignity of your individual life is not something that can be understood in isolation. The meaning of your life has to be understood, first of all, in relation to God, your creator. But second of all, in relation to all the people who have gone before us and all the people who will come after us. Now, this leads to a second lesson which is deeper than the first one. The Bible's genealogies are reminding us that God's faithful love is always at work. 
throughout all the beauty and the brokenness of human generations. Now, as we read through this list of names, there's some famous people of faith. You probably recognize some names like Abraham and Noah and David and Judah. There's some infamous sinners also in this list. There's some years of plenty and flourishing and spiritual health. But there's also some years that are mentioned in this list of God's people living in rebellion, God's people being disciplined, God's people going into exile. There's also some obscure names in here that we don't know about. They're never mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. All we know is their name that shows up in Luke chapter three. But the genealogy is here telling us through all of the beauty and all of the faith, as well as all the brokenness and sin and suffering through all the famous generations and all the obscure generations, God's faithful love has been at work. In our call to worship today, we talked about the fact that God's steadfast love endures from generation to generation. So lesson one is they teach us to think about generations and to think about our lives in terms of those who have gone before and come after. Lesson number two is these biblical genealogies give us a longer view of history that is God centered and remind us that throughout all of the beauty and brokenness that has gone before me, God has been faithful and he's been gracious to get me to this point. And he his grace is at work right now and it will be in future generations. Now, this leads us to the third lesson, which is really specific to Luke's genealogy. Luke isn't just teaching us about God's faithfulness in general. He's teaching us very some, something very specific, namely the whole history of the human race is all about Jesus. His genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. This is about humanity. It's about the history of the human race. But the culmination is Jesus. So everybody say it's all about Jesus. Everything before Jesus pointed towards Jesus. And everything after Jesus, such as our own lives, point back to the first coming of Jesus and forward to the second coming of Jesus. As we think about the generations within our own family lines and we think about the brokenness and the trauma. I mean, the fact that many of us can't name so many of our ancestors is in many cases a symptom of trauma, historic traumas and fatherlessness and broken families, not to mention Slavery and dislocation of peoples and all that kind of stuff. We've got a lot of trauma and some of us have trauma just in the couple of generations leading up to us. But when we remember that Jesus is the center and the culmination of history, we're being reminded that Jesus can heal the wounds of past generations. We're being reminded that Jesus can break generational cycles of trauma and sin. And we're being given new hope that Jesus comes to fulfill all of God's promises to bring healing and salvation and blessing to the whole world, including us and all of those who come after us, because Jesus is the center. Aren't you glad that Jesus is the center of history? Whatever other little stories we write with our lives, find their meaning and their healing and their hope in the story of Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God. Now, for the rest of our time together today, I want to think about that last lesson by zoning, honing in, zooming in on four names from this list. So we could tell stories about a lot of the people in this long list, but I just want to talk about four of them. You might circle these four names and then I'll say a few about each of them. First, I want to talk about Joseph. 
verse 23. Then I want to talk about David in verse 31. Then I want to talk about Abraham in verse 34. Then I want to talk about Adam in verse 8. Excuse me, 38. So we're going to talk about Joseph, David, Abraham, and Adam. Why are they in this list? And that's going to help us illuminate this idea that Jesus is the center of history. Joseph, we've already met in this gospel. He's the husband of Mary and the adopted father of Jesus. And the fact that he's the adopted father and the stepfather of Jesus is emphasized because look again at verse 23. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now, I encourage you to underline those three words, as was supposed, as was supposed. Luke likes this phrase, and he uses that little word supposed nine times in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And eight of those nine times, he's talking about something that people supposed wrongly. So that's what he's doing right here. And he's saying most people thought that Joseph was the biological father of Jesus, but he wasn't. He was the adopted father of Jesus. And he says this to remind us of what he already taught us back in chapter 1. Namely, the birth of Jesus was a miraculous birth. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. So Joseph is his adopted father. And his birth of the Virgin Mary is a reminder to us right at the beginning of this list that Jesus is the son of God in an absolutely unique way that no one else can be or ever has been or could be. That's important because when we get to the end of this list, we're going to run into Adam and he's going to be called the son of God. But at the beginning of this list, Luke tells us Joseph, everybody thought, was the father of Jesus. But he wasn't really. Jesus was born of a virgin. And that reminds us that as God, the son, Jesus is begotten of his father all ages uh, before all ages. He's eternally generated of the father. And then in time. His human nature was miraculously conceived and created by a miraculous invention, uh, intervention of the Holy Spirit. So that in a unique way, we could say Jesus is the son of God. Everybody say Jesus is God's son. And Luke wants us to remember that from the beginning of the genealogy. So that's all I'm going to say about Joseph right now. But remember, Jesus was born of a virgin. And that virgin birth is pointing us to the fact that he is the eternal son of God, begotten of his father before all ages, eternally generated of the father, the second person of the Trinity. Now, let's get down to verse 31. And we're going to talk about David. David is one of the characters who looms very large in the story of the Bible. We've got great stories of the heroism of David, like when he killed the giant Goliath. And we've got great stories of the failure and the sin of David, like when he sexually exploited Bathsheba and had her husband killed. So David is a complicated character. But David shows up in this list in a way that is evoking a lot of those stories, and in particular, in a way that is evoking promises of God. Because for generations, God has been telling his people that God is going to send a spirit-empowered king from the line of David who comes with God's wisdom and justice and mercy to set all things right in the world. This promise of God was first made to David himself. If you want to read about it later, you can go to Second Samuel chapter 7. 
I'm going to read a little bit to you right now from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 13. David wanted to build a temple for God. He said, I'm going to build a house for you. And God show, showed up to David, spoke to him through a prophet and said to him, you want to build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you, by which he meant a dynasty. And this is what how God explains it in 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 13. Now, I promise that you and your descendants will be kings. God speaking to David. I'll choose one of your sons to be king when you reach the end of your life and are buried in the tomb of your ancestors. I'll make him a strong ruler and no one will be able to take his kingdom away from him. He will be the one to build a temple for me. I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, if you go back and read the books of Kings and Chronicles in the Old Testament, you see that this prophecy is fulfilled through David's son, Solomon. And you see that Solomon does become a very powerful king and Solomon does build the temple, just like God said he would. And notice that it said God will call Solomon his son. Now, that prophecy, which Luke alludes to is reminding us that there's more than one way to be called a son of God. Last week, we talked about how everyone who trusts in Jesus is adopted and we become adopted sons or daughters of God. But what it's saying right here, God is saying that Solomon, son of David, is going to be a son of God in the sense that he's going to have a special relationship with God. He's going to learn to trust God and to walk with God. But here's the thing. If we continue to read the story, Solomon starts out as a very wise king who also has some very obvious problems, including arrogance and ruthlessness. And as the story continues, Solomon's obvious problems of arrogance and ruthlessness and his tendency to choose what is political uh, rather than choosing what God has said gets him into a lot of trouble And Solomon ends up turning his heart away from the Lord in a way that not only brings problems, but it brings generations of problems that will last for thousands of years. And as a matter of fact, if you look back at verse 31, you'll notice Solomon does not appear in this genealogy. If you go look at Matthew chapter one, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus traces through David and Solomon and all the kings of Judah straight to Jesus. But Luke gives us a different line. Scholars debate why exactly that is and what the difference is. Perhaps Matthew is um, tracing a legal line of descent of kings and Luke is tracing a biological line of descent. In ancient cultures like this that trace their genealogies, they could trace it in a lot of different ways based on different rules of descent and so on. So that's not really unusual that the two genealogies are different. But it is significant that when Luke tells us the story Luke tells us about David and then skips straight past Solomon and traces the line another way through Nathan, the third son of David, not through Solomon. And it's as if Luke is indicating to us what should have been painfully obvious at any rate, which is that Solomon proved to be a great disappointment. Solomon and all of the heirs of David that came from his line for generations all proved to be disappointing kings. Some of them were really obviously bad, like Solomon's son, Rehoboam. But even the relatively good ones like Hezekiah and Josiah and so on were deeply flawed people who sinned and who did foolish things so they could never bring the peace that God wanted to bring. But as the story of Israel unfolds in the Old Testament, we find that not only does God not go back on his promise to David, but God doubles down on it and expands on it a lot of different times. And he says, even though the 
descendants of David have been unfaithful to me, I'm still faithful. And I'm going to keep my promise. And I'm going to raise up an heir of David who will be a greater king than any of the kings that have gone before. Let me just read to you one of those passages of Scripture. This is Isaiah chapter 11. And I'm going to read you about the first ten verses. Listen to what it says. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will be upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You hear this? Isaiah is saying there's going to be a king in the line of David who's anointed with the Holy Spirit, just like we saw happen to Jesus last week. And he's going to come and bring the wisdom of God into the world in a new way. Isaiah continues in verse three. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his words and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. And that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. That's a sign of peace. Everybody say peace. When the king comes with God's wisdom and God's justice, it will be bring peace On earth that will bring healing to all the conflicts in the world. It says the the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat like a cow, eat hay like a cow. Verse eight says the baby will play safe near the hole of a cobra. Don't you want to see a world in which all the little kids are safe? That's what it's talking about. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with the people who know the Lord. Don't you want to see that prophecy fulfilled? And that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. Isaiah is saying when the true heir of David comes, he's going to come with wisdom. He's going to come with mercy. He's going to come with justice. He's going to bring peace to the earth. He's going to. Reveal God to all nations so that people from every ethnic and linguistic group will know and worship and obey the true God. And it's going to bring healing to every corner of God's creation. And now Luke is suggesting to us Jesus is the king. He's the one we've been waiting for. And he has come to die and rise again and then to send the spirit to spread this gospel to all nations and then to return in glory to fulfill everything that remains unfulfilled. From Isaiah's prophecy. So everybody say Jesus is the king. Joseph is here to remind us of the virgin birth. The way that Luke tells the story. David is here to let us know that Jesus is the true king who comes with power and wisdom from God to overcome evil and bring God's peace and justice to the world. Now, skip down to verse 34 and look at Abraham. In the Bible, there are many, many promises given to Abraham and then emphasized over and over again. And it's promised that the the seed of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham, will bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. 
I'll just read to you the first time that this promise comes. It's in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says this. The Lord said to Abram, later his name's going to get changed to Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you, will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God said to Abram, all peoples or all nations or all ethnic groups or all families on earth will be blessed through your descendant. So we need to think about blessing. Everybody say blessing. Blessing is a major concept in the Bible. God blesses people and often God blesses people through people. God blesses us to be a blessing. You've been blessed by God to be a blessing to others. And when we stand at the end of the service and have a benediction, we're not doing something that we made up. We're doing something the Bible tells us to do when a spiritual leader speaks a blessing of God and God speaks through them. But what does it mean to give a blessing? Well, God's blessing is God's gift of life. And abundant life. God's blessing is God's gift of vitality. It's God's gift of Flourishing in the deepest and fullest sense. God's blessing means God overcoming the curse of sin in order to bring healing so that human beings can thrive spiritually, physically, emotionally. Don't you want that throughout the world? Well, it's going to come to the whole world, to all nations. It's going to come through the seed of Abraham and all the scriptures in the New Testament teach us Jesus is that seed. And that's what Luke is telling us here. So Joseph is mentioned here in a way that evokes the virgin birth, reminds us that Jesus is uniquely the son of God. David is mentioned here in a way that tells us Jesus is the king who comes to overcome evil and to bring justice and peace to all nations. And Abraham is mentioned here in a way that reminds us throughout all those generations of unfaithful, sinful humanity, God never forgot his promise. And God is fulfilling his promise now in Jesus to bring blessing and life and flourishing to all nations. And then Luke just keeps going. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus stops with Abraham, but Luke keeps going and he goes all the way back to Adam in verse 38. And my title for the sermon today is Son of Adam, Son of God, because what's especially unique and important about this genealogy is that Luke wants us to connect the dots between Jesus and and Adam. So everybody say son of Adam. By taking the genealogy all the way back to Adam, Luke is signaling for us that the story of Jesus is a redemption story that's not just about Israel, it's about all of humanity. Don't you like redemption stories? I like to go to movies where somebody messes up preferably as bad as I've messed up in my life, and then it turns out okay. Because it gives you hope, doesn't it, when you hear those stories? Well, the Bible tells the true redemption story. And it's the true redemption story, not just for one person or for one people or one ethnic group. It's the true redemption story for all of humanity. Because we're going all the way back to Adam, the source The story of Jesus is about God intervening to rescue our broken humanity and make us fully, truly human. 
I want to ask you to think about something. Have you ever noticed that in your life and in all the humans that you know, there is tremendous beauty and tremendous dignity and pretend, tremendous potential? And there's a pretended, tremendous tendency towards evil and a constant tendency to fall short of our potential. Have you noticed that? Well, that's the story the Bible tells us. Adam is creating the image of God, Adam and Eve, and from them comes image bearers of God, filled with beauty, filled with dignity, filled with tremendous potential. But the story already starts going wrong in Genesis chapter three with Adam's sin. But before I get into that, I want you to notice what you may or may not have picked up on the first reading. When it gets to the end of the genealogy, he says the son of Adam and then he says the son of who? Somebody yell out. The son of God. Now, this raises the question, what does it mean to be for Adam to be called the son of God? We've already said that phrase can be used in a variety of different ways. Jesus is uniquely the son of God because he's the second person of the Trinity who's been with his father from all eternity. But we've already seen Solomon and actually many of the kings of Israel are called sons of God. The people of Israel as a whole are called sons of God. Here, Adam is called the son of God. What does that mean? Well, Adam is the son of God in at least three ways. First, he's created directly by God. So that's one obvious way. A second way is that Adam, prior to his sin, together with Eve, enjoyed an intimate relationship with God that was not in any way touched by sin. Can you imagine that? The joy of trusting God and walking with God without ever having to deal with any sin. Only Jesus, since Adam, has known what that's like. All the rest of us have had to battle our sin. But Adam enjoyed that special, intimate relationship. He lived for a while by faith in his father's word. He lived under this uninterrupted communion and care of his father. But Adam and Eve were son and daughter of God in a third way, which Genesis actually really emphasizes. And that is that they were vice regents. Now, we don't use those words. You know what a vice president is, right? A vice president is like second in command that helps the president. Well, a vice regent is second in command to a king who helps the king and extends the reign of the king. And Genesis chapters one and two depict Adam and Eve as God's vice regents, like prince and princess Ruling the world. And God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Their job was to extend the authority of God, the kingdom of God, the reign of God in a way that would powerfully subdue the chaos of the world in order to bring God's peace into all of creation. So as son and daughter of God, Adam and Eve were little kings and queens, little king and little queen, stewards of God's world cared to call for God's world, uh, care for God. Excuse me, I said that wrong. They are called to care for God's world and govern God's world with love and wisdom. Now, as human beings, that's still our calling. That's essential to what it means to be made in the image of God. Now, your neighbor doesn't necessarily feel this lordly, so I need you to help me out. Turn to him and say, you are a vice regent. You, if you don't believe it from me, believe it from your neighbor, Okay. You are a vice regent. That means you are created by God 
to exercise power. Now, that already makes us nervous because a lot of time when we think about power, we think about corruption and oppression, don't we? Because of sin. But you're actually created in the image of God to be a child of God, to exercise power in a redemptive way that is humble and loving and gracious, that brings peace into the world. And if that feels impossible, just know it is possible because we've seen it done perfectly once. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. Now, Jesus comes as the son of God in multiple ways. He's the son of God uniquely as the second person of the Trinity who was begotten of his father before all ages. But also he comes as the son of God, reversing the curse of sin and reestablishing the true and authentic purpose for humanity. Okay, so we have a culture that cares a lot about authenticity. And what the New Testament is teaching us is if you want to know how to be authentically human, you look at Jesus. He's the only perfectly authentically human being who's ever walked on the planet. Jesus is the prototype for authentic and true humanity, which means he's come to heal everything that is broken and wounded and traumatized in us and to restore everything that is good and beautiful and glorious in us. At this point, it might be worth pausing to note that Luke does something very strange by putting this genealogy between the story of the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. Last week, I preached about the baptism of Jesus. Next week, Jared's going to preach about the temptation of Jesus. By the way, don't you love it when Jared preaches? I just get hyped, excited about every time Jared preaches God's word because he's so full of faith. And I just get excited thinking about Jared because our church needs Jared. Aren't you glad God gave us Pastor Jared to take care of us? Let's just say thank you to God for Jared right now. We love you, Jared, in the back. Spontaneous Jared encouragement. There he is. I was looking for you in the sound booth. There you are. Okay. We love Jared. Now, I don't want to steal too much thunder for next week, Jared, for you. But Luke puts this genealogy between the baptism story and the temptation story on purpose. He wants us to think about the baptism and the temptation of Jesus in a way that connects us all the way back to Genesis and the story of Adam. When the spirit comes down on Jesus in the form of a dove, Luke wants us to think about the Holy Spirit coming down and brooding like a dove over the chaos of the primordial creation to bring peace and order. And when next week Jared preaches to us about the temptation of Jesus, Luke wants us to think about how Adam and Eve were tempted and they failed. They rebelled against God. And that's where all the trauma of the human story came from. But then they want us to look at Jesus, the second Adam, the new Adam, the last Adam. And and Luke wants us to think there is a human being, a second source for humanity, a second start for humanity who was tested in the same way of, as Adam. But everywhere Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Adam gave in to the devil, Jesus defeated the devil, which means Jesus is able to undo what Adam has done. Now, this theme of Jesus as the second Adam is a theme that shows up a lot in our New Testaments, especially in the writings of Paul. Remember, Luke was a friend of Paul. Luke was Paul's personal physician. He traveled with Paul. So I don't know if Paul taught Luke to think about this or if Luke taught Paul to think about this, but they had some conversations. OK, and you can go to First Corinthians chapter 15, which calls Jesus the last Adam. Or you could go to Romans chapter five. And Romans is going to teach us that either we are in Adam or we are in Christ. 
the new Adam, which means there's really kind of two human stories that are interwoven right now in the history of the world. There's the story of the old Adam, which has rebelled against God and is under the curse of sin and keeps perpetuating the generational trauma of humanity. And there's the story of the new Adam, Jesus Christ, the Lord, which has healed all of that brokenness and which is walking in the beauty and faith as sons and daughters of God, as vice regents of creation, forgiven and renewed and redeemed and empowered of the Holy Spirit. Both of those stories are going on all the time, and it causes us to ask the question, which story are we a part of? Which Adam are we in? Now, we're getting to the end of our sermon here. I'm almost done, but I want to step back and think for a second. Luke has been telling us, Jesus is the promised king in the line of David. He's a promised seed of Abraham that brings blessing to all nations. He's the last Adam that comes to restore humanity. Jesus is great. Jesus is awesome. Jesus, through his death on the cross and the resurrection, is bringing healing to the whole world. But the question is, what does it have to you do with you? What does it have to do with your life? We could ponder that question for a while. You could start by... Asking the question, which Adam are you in? Which Adam are you in? Here's what that question means. The Bible teaches we're all born in sin, which means we're part of the old Adam, the old humanity. And if we live and die as part of that old Adam, then we're living and dying in sin and alienation under the judgment of God. But that's not what God wants for us. He doesn't want us to live in Adam. He wants us to live in Christ. Everybody say in Christ. Now, we talked about that theme of in Christ last week, but the Bible teaches when you look at Jesus, the son of God who died on the cross for your sins and rose again and you put your faith in him, you're connected to Jesus. You're in Christ, which means everything about your old identity, all that sin and brokenness and trauma is done. It's dead. Jesus buried it. He crucified it. He took it under the waters of judgment. It's no more. It's been washed away. And it also means that. All of the good things about Jesus, that Jesus is the beloved son of God. Jesus is authentically human. Jesus brings God's wisdom into the world. Jesus is part of the new creation. All of that by grace is now true about you. That's your identity. So what we're saying here is if we don't believe the gospel, we're in big trouble. But if you believe the gospel, the brokenness of human history can be redeemed in your life. You can be a part of the new creation And then that's why the Apostle Paul tells us to take off. Paul says, take off the old man. He means the old Adam, the old humanity, and to put on the new man, Jesus Christ, the new humanity, which means, friend, if you trusted in Jesus, not only are you forgiven, but you don't have to live like a fool anymore. Isn't that good news? I'm glad that God's grace not only says, John Mark, you're forgiven for all your stupid, sinful stuff that you've done, but it says, now I'm giving you the Holy Spirit to live a different way. Take off the old humanity. Sure, everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is gossiping and slandering. Everybody else is walking in bitterness and hatred. Everybody else is walking in sexual immorality and drunkenness. But but the Bible says in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you just take it off and you can put on the new humanity. What does that look like? It looks like love, compassion, forgiveness, courage, truth. In Jesus, you become a part of a new story. And before we finish today, I want to connect that thought to the thought where we started. Everybody say generations. 
Now, here's the thing. All of us have different family stories. We have different cultural stories. We have different ethnic stories. But one thing that's true for all of us is that there is good, bad and ugly in the generations before us. There's beauty and there's trauma. If that's your story, say amen. Even if you don't know your story, you can know that's true. And part of what it's saying right now, which is very deep, is this. If Jesus had not come, there would be no escape from all of that brokenness and trauma. But Jesus came. What it's saying is in the name of Jesus, you can get grafted into a new genealogy, into a new family, which means the generational curses of sin can stop right here. They can stop right now. Okay, so. If abuse is in your family background, that does not have to be in your family future. You hear that? If alcoholism and substance abuse and sexual immorality is in your family background, it doesn't have to be in your family future. If greed and the idolatry of money is in your family background, it doesn't have to be in your family future. If being dominated by anger and bitterness and broken relationships is in your family background. It doesn't have to be in your family future. What we're saying is, in Jesus, it can all stop right here. In the the name of Jesus, there's power. But it's not just saying that in the name of Jesus, there's power to break those negative generational cycles. This is actually a text of Scripture, a little genealogy. We didn't know how I was going to preach for a long time. We didn't know how Kara was going to say all these words about this genealogy. But there's a lot in here, friends. And part of what it's saying is, In Jesus, now you can dream about the future in a new way. Not only can the brokenness of the past generations be healed, but in Jesus, you can ask yourself this question. By God's grace, what blessings am I going to infuse into the human story in my life that will continue to bless people for generations after I'm gone? Just by living in the world as a child of God, just by telling the story of Jesus and loving people and speaking truth, You can bring blessing that affects future generation. And that doesn't just have to be through your biological family. That could be through generations of disciples. And that doesn't just have to be an individual story. It's really about all of us as God's new humanity in Christ together. Church, as we evaluate what we're doing here, here's I want us to think longer term. Here's how we don't want to evaluate our success. If a lot of people come And it feels really energetic in here. We feel excited and think that was good church. And if attendance is down and everybody's tired, we think that was dead and that was bad church. That's a shallow way of thinking about it, right? Now, I mean, I like it when a lot of people come, don't you? And if somebody says amen, that makes me feel a little better. Especially if I don't have to ask for it. Amen. Amen. But though I may get a certain dopamine hit from that. It's not how we want to evaluate what we're doing right here. Here's how I want to think about it. Are we learning together to trust and walk with Jesus in a way that will bless kids born in this neighborhood 20 years from right now? Here's another way to think about it. As God's people freed in Jesus to be human in a brand new way. What gifts of healing are we giving to the subsequent generations? I want to give the next generation and the generation of that after that the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't you? Let's keep telling the story. I also want to 
the generations who are going to be born 30, 40, 50 years from now to grow up in a world where it's normal for the church to be a diverse place where people from different ethnicities and generations and education and economic background live together and love each other. And that's just normal. Don't you want to give that? I I want it to be normal for kids born 200 years from now. When they're reading about pandemics in their history book and thinking, why do I have to read all this? I want them to be born in a place in which it's normal for the church of Jesus Christ to be a community of peacemakers who are working for the healing of their neighborhoods. Don't you want to give that? I want to give to the next generation the freedom of not having to think about the same generational traumas that we keep coming back to. Because we've learned to trust and love and walk with God in a new way. Now, here's the truth. We can't crank out that reality by our own strength. But that is a gift of grace that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. Today, as we wrap up and as we pray, I want us to worship Jesus with a new sense of hope. Your story is a part of a generational story that has been healed and is being empowered and freed. By Jesus Christ. Why don't you stand with me to pray. And then we'll worship the Lord with one more song. Our Father in heaven. We worship you that we can know you as father because Jesus came. And I know that for all of us in this room. This talk about generational trauma is really real. So right now, I just pray for grace and healing in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit for every life and every generational line in this room and all those watching the live stream or listening to the podcast. Thank you that by grace we are free. Now help us to walk in that freedom, Lord. Lord, I I pray that where we've just been surviving, you would bring a new blessing in the name of Jesus. So that we would begin thriving again in a way that would pass on blessing to future generations. And Lord, we acknowledge that's not something we can do in our own strength. It's it's your gift. And in that spirit, we come to you now to worship. I pray that as we sing, your Holy Spirit would free our hearts to believe what we've heard and transform us by the renewal of our minds through the truth of the gospel. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.